I uh, grew up in a family that loved to play games, and one of them was a game called Pictionary. Now, it's been a while since I played this game, so I'm a little fuzzy on the rules, but as I remember it, the basic gist of the game went something like this. It was more a party game than a board game, and the key to playing the game was drawing pictures. So one member of the team would volunteer to be the artist, the one to do the drawing. And as they're drawing, they can't talk. And as they're drawing, they're not allowed to use any letters or numbers. And as they're drawing, the other members of the team try to guess what it is that they're drawing. So, for example, in the first round, the artist on the team might draw something like this, a, a circle. And the other members of the team, they begin to yell out their answers. And they say, uh, is, is it a ball? Is it a cookie? Is it a wheel? Oh, I, I know what it is. It's a, it's a picture of the sun. And, of course, none of the answers are correct. So you move on to the next round, and the artist... She adds a, a few more details to the pictures, and the rest of the team stares at the drawing, trying their best, trying to figure out what it is, and finally somebody says, oh, I got it, I know what it is. It's a face, it's a smiley face, right? And the artist shakes her head and gets more and more frustrated, and you move on to the next round. Well, finally you get to the place where she puts enough details in the pictures that somebody on the team can see what it actually is. It's a button. And it's been a button all the way along. It was never a ball, it was always a button. But until you had enough facts put in place, until you had enough details put in the picture, the other people on the team could not recognize it for what it really was. Well, we see that same thing happen in the Bible. Think about Luke chapter 24. There we see two people on their way to Emmaus. They're now leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're walking back to their home, the, the little village of Emmaus. And one of them is a man by the name of Cleopas, but we're not given the name of the other person. And through the years, people have always been curious, well, who is that other person? And just exactly who are these two on the way to Emmaus? You know, back in the fourth century, there was a guy by the name of Eusebius, and he wrote this big, long book on the history of the church. And in that book, he claimed that Cleopas, this guy that we read about in Luke chapter 24, that Cleopas was actually a brother to Joseph, stepfather of Jesus, which would mean that that Cleopas was an uncle to Jesus. Well, we don't know if that's correct or not, because nobody's ever been able to document what Eusebius said. Or other people notice that comment that's made in John chapter 19, uh, where the Apostle John's talking about all the women who are sitting near the cross on that day when Jesus is being crucified. And the Apostle John mentions that one of them is a woman named Mary, who happened to be the wife of a man by the name of Clopas. Clopas, Cleopas, that's kind of close. Could we be talking about the same fellow? And if we are, then those two on the way to Emmaus were not two men, but was actually a husband and wife. But again, we don't know if that's correct or not. Now, sorry for all the rabbit trails, but do you begin to get the impression that what, what's happening there in Luke chapter 24 is something really fascinating. So here are these two people now leaving Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus. And over the past three days, they have witnessed some amazing things, seeing Jesus die on a cross and then being buried in a tomb. And then on the third day, they heard the rumors how the tomb is now empty, that Jesus came to life again. He arose. Wow, that's a lot to process, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And for these two on the way to Emmaus, they're still not clear, what does that mean? They still don't recognize this picture. What did we just witness there? So Sunday afternoon, heads down, hearts heavy with grief, they begin this long seven-mile hike back to their home. And suddenly, Jesus shows up. And he asks, hey, do you mind if I join you? Can I walk along with you for a while? And neither of the two recognizes that it's Jesus. 
I mean, their minds are so preoccupied with other things and, and they just quickly respond, sure, we'd love to have the company. So for seven miles, here are these two actually walking and talking with Jesus himself and yet not once on this long hike do either of them ever perceive or appreciate who they're actually talking to. Why? Why can't they recognize him? I mean, is it a, a lack of faith, too much doubt, or the fact that on this day their minds, hearts just blinded by the grief, blinded by the the sense of despair, I'm sure all those things may have been factors, but it's the Bible itself that gives us the answer. Luke chapter 24, verse 16, it says it was God. It was God who kept them from seeing Jesus. God didn't want Jesus to be recognized until the moment was right. Think of it like this. Here's a man sitting by a pond, and he accidentally drops a coin in the water, so he quickly picks up a stick, and he begins to, to poke around trying to separate that coin from the rocks there in the bottom of the pond. But in the process of poking around with that stick, he stirs up so much mud that now the water gets cloudy, and he can't see a thing. So before he can retrieve that coin, what does he have to do? He has to sit back and just wait for a while. Wait until the water becomes clear again. Now he can see the coin, and he can actually grasp and get a hold of what's important to him. That's Luke chapter 24. For the past three days, everything here in the city of Jerusalem has become so cloudy for these two on the way to Emmaus and all those others who watched Jesus. The one they believed to be the Messiah, the coming king, the one they believed to be that one that was prophesied and talked about all the way through the Old Testament. And they were right to believe that. But then when they saw their Messiah being crucified on the cross, man, that threw them for a loop. What? Messiah cross? We never put those two things together. This picture really caught them off guard. What is our Messiah doing on a cross? Is this not a picture of defeat? Did we not hear with our own ears Jesus crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And does that not imply that he's lost everything and the enemy is won? I mean, it was hard for anybody who was watching this to make sense of what's going on here. So... Luke 24, Jesus shows up and it says, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses, the first part of the Old Testament, and then moving on to the prophets, the other part of the Old Testament, Jesus very patiently, for seven miles, Jesus very patiently begins to explain to these two very confused people, verse 27, all that the scriptures had to say concerning the Messiah. Hey, what did God have in mind when he sent Jesus to the world? Well, listen, this is not a picture of defeat. This is a picture of victory. This is no accident. This was a part of God's plan. This event here was not orchestrated by the Roman Empire. This was all orchestrated by God himself. This is not a picture of what Rome's doing to Jesus. This is a picture of what God is doing for us. But until Jesus came along and began to fill in some more of the details, the two in the way and the two Emmaus could not see that. Until the scriptures were carefully explained to them, only then could they begin to recognize this picture. This is not a ball, it's a button. This is not a defeat. What we have here is a glorious picture of salvation. Now, here's the other thing that's fascinating about that account in Luke chapter 24. You ever notice how Luke writes the book? How he puts it all together? How he tells the story of Jesus there in the Gospel of Luke? There in the beginning part of his book, the end of chapter 2, he shows us two people. Joseph and Mary. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're walking back to their home in Nazareth. And they go a day's journey, an entire day, until they realize Jesus is not with us. Suddenly they're in a state of panic and they frantically return to the city of Jerusalem. And they spend three days trying to find their 12-year-old son. And alas, they find him there in the temple. And it's there in the temple we hear Jesus patiently explain, Didn't you know? Don't you understand that I must be about my father's business? 
Now we come to the end of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and once again we witness two people leaving Jerusalem, taking a day's journey as they head back to their home in Emmaus. And for the past three days here in the city of Jerusalem, they've been in agony trying to figure out what just happened to Jesus. Just like Joseph and Mary spent three days in Jerusalem trying to figure out what happened to Jesus. Well, once again, Luke chapter 24, Jesus shows up and patiently begins to explain, didn't you know? Don't you understand what I was trying to do on this cross? I must be about my father's business. Now, I'm saying all that in order to make this point. I think we have something similar going on here in the latter part of Philippians chapter 3, where in verse 20, the Apostle Paul is talking to these people living in the ancient city of Philippi and says, don't you know? Don't you understand? Don't you appreciate the fact that when you made this decision to follow Jesus, your identity changed? Now you're not just citizens of Philippi. You are now citizens of heaven which means you're not in this place by accident. You're there for a purpose, and you're there to help the people of this town understand this is not a ball, it's a button. This town of Philippi is more than just a Roman colony. This is now the place where God wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, as you begin to live as citizens of heaven, encourage other people to live as citizens of heaven too. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, let's read verse 20. Let's look at the picture that God has drawn for us. Let's look at the details that he's given to us and see what we can learn. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, but our citizenship, now that we follow Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. Our lives are now governed by a different realm. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This word citizenship was often used in the ancient world to describe a group of people who were now living in a place that wasn't actually their home. For example, we have a letter from the 3rd century B.C. that talks about a group of Jews who were now living in Alexandria, Egypt, far away from their original home of Israel. And in the letter, it talks about how every Saturday these Jews, unlike any of their neighbors, unlike any of the Egyptians, these Jews every Saturday would come together to a place, a building called a synagogue, and there they would listen to the reading of the Torah, the reading of God's law. And in that letter, as it describes this activity, it talks about those from the Jewish community. And that word community is the same word as the word citizenship here. Those from the Jewish community. In other words, the Egyptians were saying, hey, it's obvious you folk are not from around here. Because you do things that we don't. You have traditions, you have customs, you have a culture that's unlike our own. The way you act, the way you talk, it makes you really stand out. We see the same thing today. You hear somebody at work speak with a southern drawl. And right away you know, you weren't born in Indiana, were you? Or you hear somebody speak with a Scottish brogue and, and instantly you know, this is not your native country, is it? You can just tell by watching or by listening to them, they are citizens from another place. That's the meaning of what we're reading here, verse 20. You know, it used to be, I, I think the laws have changed over the years, but it used to be when the United States would send an ambassador to a foreign country, they would give that man or that woman a special place to live. They called it an embassy. And that embassy, the building and the surrounding property, that entire compound, that embassy was considered to be a state, just like any of the 50 states here in North American soil. Only this state, the embassy, obviously smaller, than those other states. And this state, this embassy, happened to be on foreign soil instead of American soil. But all the laws, all the rights, all the privileges that applied to anybody living in the United States had the same force, same authority, same significance for any of those Americans living overseas. So for example, way back in the, way back in the 1920s when prohibition was the law, 
when it was forbidden for any American citizen to drink or sell alcoholic beverages, that, those, that law applied not just to Americans living in American soil, it also applied to all Americans living in any of those embassies on any other point around the world. So if you were the ambassador for America back in the 1920s, you were America's ambassador to England. And here you are living in the city of London. You're living inside that American embassy. Well, back there in the 1920s, in the, 1920s, in the city of London, uh, having a beer after work, that was, that's legal. I mean, having a, a bottle of liquor there is sitting there in your kitchen, that was not considered to be a crime. But if they found that bottle of liquor sitting inside the American embassy, you could be convicted of a crime. Because even though you're living there in the city of London, because you're an American in that American embassy, that part, that compound, that entire compound is still considered to be a part of the United States. Inside that embassy, you are governed by a different standard. Your guidelines for what you consider to be right, for what you consider to be proper, it comes from a different realm. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in verse 20. As Christians, we do not let our circumstances or the people around us define who we are or decide how we act. No, we're, go we're governed by a higher standard. Now that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we approach life from a different point of view. Here's an example. Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes to the house of Zacchaeus, that hated man, hated because he's a, a corrupt tax collector. And yet when Jesus shows up the house, everything changes. In fact, by the end of the day, Jesus proclaims salvation has come to this place. Now, what did he mean? Now Zacchaeus can know that when his life comes to end, when he dies, he's going to go to heaven. Sure, it means that, but it means something more. Now that Jesus is in his house, now his home, Zacchaeus' home has become an embassy, an embassy of heaven on earth. And you can tell because Zacchaeus is not the same anymore. He gives half of his possessions to the poor and he makes a promise to pay back anybody he's ever cheated to pay him back four times more than what he ever took from them. I mean, it is amazing. The poor are being helped and the cheated are now receiving justice. And it's all because Zacchaeus has become an ambassador for Christ. His home is the place where now God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the main reasons why that story was put in the Bible was to remind us Salvation is not just about us getting into heaven. Yeah, it's about that. But salvation is also about getting heaven into us. Eternal life, this special blessing that God wants to be able to share with us. That's not a blessing you have to wait to receive until somewhere way out there in the future. No, that's a blessing we can begin to enjoy and experience right here, right now. You see, as followers of Jesus, your life and mine is intended by the Lord to be a preview, a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. A place of love and joy, a place where people are always helpful and productive, a place where there's no fear, you never have to look over your shoulder, because you can trust everybody, and you can trust everything they do. You see, even now, citizens of heaven, by the way in which we live our lives, we're drawing a picture that helps other people to see what that new world's going to be like. Now, here's the challenge. <laughs> Taking what is there in heaven and bringing it here to a world that's just saturated with sin, that's not easy. You know, have you ever been on a plane and right across the aisle is this young mother with a two-year-old child and you see that little boy holding his ears and just screaming in pain, Mommy, Mommy, my ears are hurting. So what does the mother do? She wraps her arms around the little boy. She hands him a stick of gum and says, Chew on this for a while. I, th I think it'll help. 
Now you climb inside the mind of that two-year-old boy, and what is he thinking? My ears are killing me, and she hands me a stick of gum? What kind of response is that? Are you kidding? I don't think she cares. Well, of course she cares. But you see, the mother knows something that the boy doesn't. She knows the reason why his ears are hurting is because of the pressure. And one of the ways to relieve the pressure is to chew the gum. But that two-year-old little boy does not understand it. So what does he do? Does he do what his mother tells him to do? No, he spits the gum out and he continues to cry and scream. How many times have we acted like that two-year-old boy? Sometimes we read our Bibles and God's instructions just don't seem to be relevant to our situation. I mean, here we are having trouble with our finances. We're struggling to pay the bills, and we read God's word, and what does the Lord say? Take 10% of your weekly salary and put it in the offering plate. Give me a tithe. And we're thinking, God, are you crazy? I'm not making enough money as it is. Now you want me to take another 10% of that income and just hand it over to you? Lord, that doesn't make any sense. But just like the mother on the plane, God can see things. He knows details that we don't. He understands that the real problem with our situation is not a lack of money, it's a lack of faith. That when you put the tithe in the offering plate, that's more than an act of charity. When you put that tithe in the offering plate, that's an act of trust. But rather than trust God and do what he says, too many times we're like the little boy. Instead of chewing the gum, we spit it out and we continue to cry and complain about our awful situation. And I don't think God cares about me. That's why the Apostle Paul is challenging us. Philippians 3.20, if you are really serious about following Jesus, then you don't live like a citizen of this world. You live like a citizen of heaven, meaning your life is not determined by your earthly situations. It is now determined by God. What he says, we do. Where he sends, we go. What he wants, that's what we respond to. Now that I follow Jesus, my life is not determined by where I came from. No, now my life is determined by where I'm going. And I'm going to a place where love abounds and sin is abolished and joy covers everything we do. So just like Zacchaeus living in the ancient city of Jericho and just like Epaphroditus living in that ancient city of Philippi, I want my world to know salvation has come to this house. This life is now an embassy for God. And because Jesus lives here, I won't be the same.